Welcome to a rather special edition of Top Lines and Tales this week. Once again, we'd like to thank our sponsors, Harborough, for their continued support. Welcome to another episode of Top Lines and Tales, and I'd like to welcome as a guest this week our regular uh, Dr. Bob Hoke. However, this week is a special for, for Bob, as today he was awarded the U.S. Beef Improvement Federation Pioneer Award, recognizing his lifetime contribution to the beef industry in the USA and globally and, uh, and the performance movements. Bob, congratulations and welcome. Thank you so much. And I mean, it's always fun to be on your show first. And, uh, and then also, the, yeah, this is a, a special day for me. I mean, getting this award is, is really quite uh, something for me because this is the organization I've been most closely aligned with throughout my career, and it's it's just it's just pretty humbling that you know it's very humbling. And it's not new, but Bob, you you're a man that's been in about in and around the award ceremonies more times than some of the well-known actors there. But previously, you've earned the uh, the BIF Continuing Service Award, and then the the BIF Ambassadors Award Award as well. So. Uh, I think the latter being more for journalists who educate and promote performance. But uh, are you the, the only, the only, the second person to earn all three, Bob? Is that right? Yeah, Dr. Bob Tabaka got it, and Dr. Bob Tabaka was a big bear of a man that was an early performance pioneer and ran the Iowa Beef Cattle Improvement Association, and uh, and he did a lot with the Certified Meat Sire Program, and he wrote this wonderful book courageous cattlemen about all the early cattlemen that, that started the performance movement i'd recommend anybody that can get a hold of courageous cattlemen uh get it i mean it's a wonderful uh history of the people yeah. that's a cool company what sort of year are you talking about that book uh, bob well i think that book came out uh, in the uh, uh probably the late 70s okay. i think okay. i mean it's it, uh yeah, I mean, it was, it was fairly early. I mean, mainly, we were talking about 50s and 60s when these, these people were really active in the early 70s. Gosh, um, and Dave Nichols and all the people we think about. Gosh, it, it is a cool thing. Yeah, yeah, indeed. Well, it's, it's a brilliant, as I said, to be only the second person to earn, uh, earn all three of those awards there. And, Bob, let's just, just have a look and see how you got this far, because uh, hats off to you for, for what you've done. And we'll just have a, we're going to spend this episode just having a little bit look through your, your career and, and the people that influenced uh, you, Bob, because uh, I, for one, find it highly, highly fascinating. And, as I said, been a great guest, and we've talked about everybody else. And uh, you got the floor this week, so... Uh, of course, you you started your career pretty much at high school in the in the Future Farmers of America, or the FFA as it's called, isn't it? To uh, and and right through to where you are now, just to give us a bit more of your of your history about the FFA. I think you know, to put it in a global sense, I mean, you're kind of cumulatively uh, are uh, what you the people you've learned from is, is the knowledge you have and your and what you observe, and then. Uh, it, it's who you surround yourself with. I mean, people like you, and that's what makes you successful. <laughs> and, and so, I mean, I, I've been so lucky throughout my career. It started with FFA. Uh, I had a uh, Dave Siemens was the uh, vocational agriculture instructor, and he happened to be the first junior Charlet uh, junior coordinator. Okay. <laughs> so, from down in Houston, so so I had. He sent us on all these junior uh, Charlotte trips around the country. It was a one, wonderful opportunity. And, uh, I mean, to have somebody that come in from a, 
a national level and drop them into central Pennsylvania is kind of rare. And, and one last thing I grew to appreciate about him, too, is he also took on a lot of students that it was kind of their last chance to keep them in school. I didn't appreciate that at the time, but I fully appreciate that now that, I mean, he, he was a t t tough enough guy that he could take it and keep some tough people in school. So we had the I kids and he had those kids and he got a, and he worked with both. And, and I've learned about that over time with reflection. So I got off to a great start. You did. And what, what age does the FFA start at, Bob? What, you, you said you're still in high school. What, and start and run to, should I say? Well, What's the age well, well, I'd say 14, 14 up to uh, 18 when you graduate from high school. Okay. So it's uh yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a four year deal. I mainly was active for three years, and it, it takes part of your day. And and I kept pretty busy because I was trying to take uh, the credits to go to college too, as well as fit in the vocational agriculture section of it, which which was to get you ready to go go farm and do those things. So so I was pretty busy at school. wasn't necessarily the greatest, but I was busy. But the, does the FFA, is that only a school thing? Does that drop when you're 18? Is there a continuation of that until they're going older? Well, I mean, there is a national FFA organization. And gosh, I, and, and there are some officers. So, the, the, yeah, you can continue to show uh, for, for a period of time with, with your chapter. But, you know, I got, like, the opportunity to go to Washington, D.C. with a leadership conference. And those were the, the national officers and those were college students that were unbelievably trained and, and, and motivational and they even taught us etiquette they taught us how to do, you know, tie a tie correctly which a lot of people needed because i remember driving down there and i was with a, a group from a different chapter one guy thought we had to cross the border crossing to get out of the state. He'd never been out of his home county. So, I mean, it, it was a great, great experience. Sure, sure. And, and getting into the cattle business and, and, and Penn State that you mentioned just now, the state of Pennsylvania University as its pretty full name, I suppose. And uh, you had the opportunity then to be around some, some of the greats, didn't you? And we've talked about some of these before. Professor Herman Purdy, who, who, who retired to, and, and he farmed with John Dawes that we spoke about and yeah, and, and Dr. Erskine Cash as well, who took his place at Penn State and bred a lot of the famous cattle there, Bob. It's some, some tremendous people. Were you just lucky? Were they just the right ones there, or did every university have people as good as us? I was very, very fortunate. I had two of the best people in the country. I mean, Herman Purdy was the best, and he moved his farm when he retired very close to ours. And um, it was it was a tremendous opportunity to uh, be around him and, uh, you know, go down and feed and, uh, and learn. And, and gosh, one of the things that he taught us was that you need to look, you know, don't just uh, don't go through things mechanically. And, and after you fed, he would quiz you what you saw. Right. And so it was a tremendous learning opportunity. And, and, uh, and one of the proudest moments was he decided I had the eye because he thought you were either born to, be able to observe livestock or not so he, he he one day he said bobby has the eye bobby has the eye and so that was a proud moment and, and of course herman purdy was one uh, of the greatest cattle judges of all time and and uh, i didn't really realize that people believe that you actually have the eye or you don't and, and he honestly believed he couldn't teach that if you did if you didn't have that to have that or you weren't born with that gift 
Yeah, he, I mean, he believed that some people just did not have the talent to to see things. He, he could teach you what to see, you know, and, and what things meant. But but he, yeah, he believed that you were either born with the ability to to uh, observe and or not, and and that was a skill you, you came into life with or not, and, and, and you just you couldn't teach it. And Bob, did some of that come through your family or through the rest of your background, or was this just something you just felt you were just lucky, just as a gift that just came to you? I think I think it was I was just lucky, you know. My my brother, we we went through like dairy judging at Penn State together. I mean, hell, he he was, he was not the best at it, you know. <laughs> he would I'd have an A, and he would have a much lower grade on those kinds of things. So, okay. yeah, I mean, just in our family, there was quite different, quite a bit of difference. Uh, and, who, and who else did you have on that? It wasn't just Herman. With you had a few there. Who else did you have on that on that team at Penn State? Oh, well, I mean, Dr. Erskine Cash had taken uh, Professor Purdy's position when he retired. And then Dr. Cash came in with this fresh performance philosophy and, and, and restocked with a different kind of cattle because we had moved into the new types as, as Herman had restocked. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and he bred, you know, the power play and Franco and Playmate and, and High Pockets and Sasquatch and all these famous bulls basically were all born whenever I was there and, and went out. It was an exciting place to be. I'm sure. I mean, Dr. But, Kasher is extremely talented. I'm sure, but it, it was that you actually had, and again, the people don't understand that the universities actually had some of the top herds, and you had you know one of the top herds in the country actually at the university, not just by chance, because they'd been bred there by Herman and obviously followed up by, uh, by Dr. Cash. It was such a time. I worked there one summer near the the end of my college and uh at, at the beef barns and we clipped all the calves i mean there were so many regular visitors that were there you know willing to pay big money that, it, that you could pay to go out and clip every calf so we, that's what we did did they pay you for that job or was that students uh, they did <laughs> they, no no we that was a minimum wage yeah you know, okay. the minimum wage was okay enough to get get what beer i needed to drink so okay. we, it was all good <laughs> And and he Cash was your judging coach, and I think he sort of got you more into giving reasons as well, which of course is another side to judging. It's not just about just judging the animals in front of you. It's about being able to to stand behind your reasons. And judges nowadays yeah, maybe more do that, but, but a lot of eight. judges in the past they ha- they haven't had the ability to do that. They'll judge cattle and then jump in the car and drive away. And I think you have to have that ability, don't you? Be interesting for the uh, to watch the show and informative. I mean, the judge needs to give some reasons and. Uh, I mean, they should be able to justify the way they place the cattle, and and yeah, that was part of it. And I don't have the best speaking voice or anything else, but I, you know, I I pretty good at giving reasons, and I actually uh, I placed in reasons at several major contests. I gave the highest set of reasons, interestingly, at one contest, and then they asked me to give it at the banquet the set of reasons and that's a little bit of a nerve-wracking thing get up in front of a whole banquet and give us some hampshire hog regions and uh the funny thing they had risers where they they pulled them out and they had a really small riser and there was two sets of them stepped up where the podium was and then there was long ones but this one was very unsteady 
to give that reasons to the banquet. During the reasons, for some, I was rolling along, everything was fine, but I noticed my knee was started shaking. And as my knee shook, the microphone started shaking a little bit. And I thought, i got to get the hell out of here. And so I, I turned those reasons up in my gear, and I got through them fast, but it was it was fun and it, it was quite an honor. And, and on that, with the, giving the reasons, Bob, I just uh, um, you, you can give good reasons and, and be wrong with a judge and still actually be justified, can't you, to do that? Because if you give enough accurate reasons in there that what you think, then I think that still gives you credibility, even if you don't get the, the placing right. Me exactly, and I'll give you an example. At, at the national contest, there's only three classes of. And one of the classes of Rams, I placed the top three sheep backwards. I mean, just flat backwards. And I, I talked that. That was a reasons class, and I talked that. And I talked them correctly, and I placed 11th in sheep in the national contest, having placed three of the sheep backwards. So obviously, obviously describing them correctly and explaining why you did something is important. And, and, and that's something that I, I took when I was judging shows. I mean, you, you got to be confident. You'll be quick, be confident, and be able to explain what you did. Exactly. And I, I'm an extremely lucky person. I never had anybody jump in my pocket mm -hmm. because I did explain what I did. And I didn't sit there and stare at it for a half hour. Some people will look at a pair forever, oh, yeah. and, and they always get it wrong when they do that. You, you, you make a decision, you do it for a reason, and you explain it. You'll get along fine. I think, I think it was Neil Massey that said, if you're going to make a mistake, make it in a hurry, and then maybe nobody will notice. So you're right. <laughs> <laughs> that, was, that was Herman's philosophy. I'll tell you what, if he was judging, you better be ready to have your cattle fed. Yeah. I mean, he was he was really nonchalant, but I think he had him placed as they walked in the ring. Yeah. I mean, he didn't fool around. Sure, sure, sure. And let's go on. I mean, when you, you went on. Why, well, what made you decide to go on to graduate school then, uh, uh, Bob? Well, that you know, that's actually a funny story. I I planned on well, at first I planned on on staying home and farming with my brother, and uh, uh, we were milking cows, which is not uh, the most fun thing in the world. But uh, one day my, we got into a rather knockdown, drag out fight, and my mother said, "Well, I think we should not do this," which is a good thing because. We would have starved to death milking cows eventually. And, and my brother had been in the Marine Corps, and he went back in the Marine Corps, and it was very successful. And, and I actually thought I had a production job. But I had a guy I would go on road trips, beer drinking periodically, and he was uh, doing an uh, uh, interview for a master's at Worcester Polytechnic Institute, Massachusetts. And we were driving by Yukon, University of Connecticut, and I knew the judging team members. I thought we should stop there and drink some beer. And so at the time, I also set up with that to go in and, and meet the department head, Dr. Cowan, who was a great guy, he turned out to be a wonderful man. And, and, and I, I had a production job lined up. And it fell through, and like the next day, Dr. Cowan called and said, hey, I have an assistantship here if you want it to coach the judging team. And I thought times being what they were, that sounded pretty damn good to me. So that's where, I mean, it was really not a lot of planning involved. So I went up there, and I loved it. I, lo I just absolutely loved it. And that's the University of Connecticut that, that you're saying there. And uh, yeah, tell us, what was the faculty like there? Oh, I mean, it was a bunch of great, 
World War II veteran types, a lot of athletes, uh, uh, just just some true gentlemen. And the interesting thing is they were a bunch of people that knew livestock from draft horses to saddle horses, you know, beef, sheep, swine. They knew all part aspects of livestock. You don't see those generalists anymore. And, and it was also a terminal master's degree program where um, – they trained you to do extension, to teach, and do, and do practical things. It wasn't really set up for you to move on and get a PhD. It was set up you to do extension. And so you got a wonderful practical uh, experience there. They taught you how to teach. They taught you a lot of great things. And, and that was fun. And it was an interesting thing. Dr. Cowan was a bear of a man. And he was the department head, had been for like 40 years. And we had a graduate student mixer. And because it was a terminal program, graduate students turned over quickly. And so he all got us together and he lined up all the male graduate students. This is when we were all fresh there. And, and the Indian wrestled us. That's where you put your right foot you know, against each other's side. And then with your right hand, you, you move your left with your right hand. You see who could put who on their butt. And so Dr. Cowan went about and put every one of us on our butts. I had the uh, honor of lasting the longest. So anyway, Dr. Cowan got the pecking order straight pretty quickly on how things were going to be. But I mean, it was just it was just a great experience. Dr. Malkus's family took me in. Great. Dr. Hale, Dr. Kinsman, Don Graham, one of the great livestock people that ever existed. Mm. All right, so they were really great, great experience. Brilliant, brilliant. And then you went on, uh, Bob, to from New England to the deserts, I think, in the southwest Arizona, to, to to coach another judging team down there at the University of Arizona. That that'd be some change, changing everything. I mean, I know you're in New Mexico just now, and you say it's hot, but that would have been some serious, uh, serious time in the desert, just down there. Uh, uh, yeah, I'll tell you, the first year, we arrived in the summer, and I would, like, cut through buildings if I was going across campus, and I wouldn't miss a water fountain, that's that's for sure, because it is in the middle of the desert. And then the second year, we would go out and play sunstroke golf, because you could get cheaper rates in the <laughs> afternoon in the summer, so it just it didn't bother me at all, and, and you know, we would go out and work cattle, and, and I mean, it was, it was a really wonderful experience I, I i didn't stay there that long i i kind of got moved back east but why i was there in a short period i got to work uh in the feedlots they had and at some of the commercial feedlots and exposure to that i went up to the apache reservation uh twice for roundups really and where they were collecting data yeah. yeah, I mean it was it was wonderful. I mean, cowboy coffee with the eggshells, and you throw some cold water so the grounds will go to the bottom. I mean, it was it was the whole thing, but it was it was fascinating. This was the the Apache Reservation. They had six units. We were on the best unit. It was the seed stock unit. It was about a thousand cows uh, on. And it was a cow to a hundred acres. Right. So, I mean, it was big, extensive country. And, and that was just totally opened my eyes to what a difference and how many differences in environments. And the interesting thing is if one of those cows went open for a year in a place where I couldn't even figure out what they lived on, they would come in so fat. It was unbelievable. Really? I mean, just sloppy fat. So they were that adapted to that tough an environment. And they'd be that, Angus. They'd be, that if they weren't producing. They'd be Angus cattle, I guess. No, would they? 
No, those were were straight Herefords. Herefords, Uh, I mean, the the West was, uh, for many, many years, straight Herefords. And eventually the Angus came in. I don't know whether they ever went. They probably would have gone to Baldy's just because of market forces. But, yeah, it was Hereford World back then. When you say you rounded up the cattle, Bob, that would be you on a horseback, was it? No, no, no. I was there. There was uh, Native American cowboys. They were doing it, and uh, I spent most of my time uh, at the tail end of the cattle, make, getting them up into the chute. Okay. You know, right. so but you know they would bring groups in from various parts of of the ranch, and you know they would come in about an hour, or be several cowboys with a big group of cows, and and then we would work them, and um, and and kind of. Uh, they had that uh, Quonset huts. We kind of camped out at night, and it was it was very very interesting. And the feedlots were the same thing. Gosh, yeah. it, it was amazing. Yeah, yeah, sure. And, and and made made the most of the water they'd got. And you wonder how those things work. But I mean, as you said, it's about adaptability, isn't it? Yeah, and you know those cattle have to they have to go a long way to the water. So I mean, they travel. They have to travel. And I, I I started to understand what good foot structure was because I mean you you saw it there they called them rock footed cattle and gosh you know, I mean there there was a lot to learn and uh, and there was also like we went to the Yuma feedlot they had an experimental feedlot and that is below sea level at the end of the Colorado River so there's a little bit of humidity that is one of the hottest places on earth so you would get up. Like uh, it start work at the as soon as dawn, and then you would work for a while. Midday, literally, you go back to the motel and sleep, and then you would work into the evening as long as you could. But you had to wear leather gloves because the metal would be so hot, all the gates and everything. Yeah. I mean, it was really hot. So it was a fun experience. Different times, and then eventually you made your way up to Virginia Tech, where you had a proper job. But I say uh, paid by the farm, I think, and uh, again carried on with your with, uh, with the judging team, didn't you? I was I had a teaching assistantship that was paid by the farm, and I worked for uh, D- uh, Dan Eversall, and Dan oversaw the beef herd and taught beef management and and then uh uh my advisor was uh farby mccarthy oversaw the sheep unit and we would show some sheep and we would show some cattle and and it, i mean it was fun it was it was a lot of fun but it, it, scientifically gosh there was a lot of really really smart people there so i actually had to become a student i kind of just sort of bluffed my way through but there i i mean i had to pony up and study hard and and I, i'm really glad i had that experience that i really got challenged uh to, to be a student and you know, one funny thing there you know i went out and calf cow so i got all that uh, I, I mean, two two quick things. I got you know really some research bases that I didn't. You know, I went on and did other things, but we worked in a hot lab. I mean, a radioactive lab, and it was uh, we had Rand, Randy Fry, who was doing muscle biology, but it was mainly a muscle biology lab, and he was teaching car- radioactive carbon safety to a co-ed who they had hired to wash test tubes, and. Uh, and and he was on a on a stool and eventually fell backwards in the stool and splashed the radioactive carbon all over his face. So there, Farby McCarthy comes in and we're all sitting there with Geiger counters, seeing how radioactive Randy Fry is. And so the joke is is that the uh, someday archaeologists are going to dig up Randy Fry and and they'll. Uh, 
carbon dated and he won't have been born yet because he's <laughs> the radioactive carbon. But uh, it was a, it was a it was a great experience there. And and then uh, the other great experience about Virginia that it made such a difference in my life. There were so many good things came together for me. Is I had sold out at the end of my uh, when I went to grad school. The remainder of my cows, the, the John, Herman Party and John Doss, and they bred them upright and resold them a lot of them into Virginia. Okay, and this was a few years down the road, but now that all all my I started going around with the judging team and I started seeing all my old cows in their donor pens, and, and so they. So they, uh, you know, they bought it from Herman. So they were obviously great cows. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, you know, they they were they were good cows. They were good cows. But anyway, all of a sudden, I was a pulled her for genius <laughs> because they had spent a lot of money on my cows. So me fire selling my cows to Herman was one of the great things I ever did. And then I started judging pulled Herford shows all over okay. the all over the country in Canada. It was a wonderful, wonderful. Happenstance. But you, you did eventually get to get your PhD. Obviously, you got your PhD, uh, Bob, because you are Doctor Bob. And uh, where did you go to get that one? Well, that was at Virginia Tech. Okay. Yeah, it was. It was a great. You know, they had some other great faculty like uh, 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 Doctor Gary Minish and uh, Ike Eller, and I mean, they, they had a great bunch of faculty there. It was a wonderful opportunity sure. for me. Sure. And then, and then from there, you went up to to Maine, I think, of all places, and that's not really considered the center of the cattle industry in the U.S. Well, what 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 drew you up there? Well, you know, uh, I always make the joke that I wanted to be in the foreign service, but it was afraid to leave the country because it is a, as far east and north as you can get. I mean, it la- the main last east and north of the United States. And so it's way up there. Yeah. And But my wife's family is from there. Okay. And and she summered up there every summer. Uh, and so, so it was, uh, I actually got hired. He wasn't too thrilled about it, but I got hired by my wife's uncle, right. Uncle Lou, and so he hired me cheap anyway. And Nancy's grandfather was also a, a potato specialist up there, and they had had a family member in extension since the 1930s. And so, so I was kind of going into the family business, but yeah, it, it was not uh, densely stocked with livestock. No. But I mean, I got the opportunity to be involved with everything. But one, one quick story, Uncle Lou got there and normally uh, the way universities have been going it was all about publications and everything and and research and i got there and uncle lou said there's a car out in the parking lot i'd leave it for you i want you in that car out working with producers and i don't want you sitting in your office writing silly publications no one's ever going to read and i thought this is going to be fun i mean this is going to be a blast so i mean it could have been a more wonderful opportunity and i had to be involved in all aspects of of livestock i mean every you know, health, everything, and there was nowhere to hide. You know, you had to, had to handle everything. And, and you would work with the Canadians as well, I, I guess. You're up near the border there, aren't you? Yeah, we, we were surrounded by Canada, basically, and uh, and we, we our agriculture was much more similar to New Brunswick and Nova Scotia and, and in, those, in a sense, Prince Edward Island. So we tended to do a lot of programming with uh, with New Brunswick okay. and uh, had... Uh, 
Bob Culpitz and Guy LeBlanc. Uh, it was a wonderful group of people there. And, uh, and we had a great team, believe it or not, in Maine. I mean, different sets of skills. I, I always believe you, you had to get a team if you were going to get anything done. And there were some people in the Department of Ag. There was people, uh, county agents, SCS. I mean, I just, I just gathered up all these people with diverse talents and, and some great producers. And gosh, we got a lot done. Yeah. You know, we, we set up feeder calf sales and uh, feedlot industry and how to feed the different cattle. And I mean, it, it was, we, we set up, we were moving about a thousand head through our feeder calf sales. It was, would, it was pretty good. And you would get some of these big name people to come up and, and, and actually speak on the programs and, and judge the shows while you were there. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's amazing if you just ask who will come up and like Dr. Harlan Ritchie and, and Glenn Klippenstein and I mean, just all the big names. Jim Gibb, who is a, a great person that you're on, you know, people in the UK might not know, but it's, they should know. He's a, he's one of the great ones. But yeah, I mean, I, I had the best night. I had a system. It's, it's what I did is I in the morning you hit them with all the really hard science stuff and then then and they then you go into application after lunch and you farm farmers producers that show how this stuff is implemented and then you have a a uh, motivational speaker at the end and then we would take the topics from our conference at the in december and uh and and that would be what we would program for the year so we bring in these big guns they would get them excited you get a Glenn Klippenstein at the end of the program to wind them up, to go out and chew nails, and and, and we, we got we got some stuff done. It was fun, Brilliant. and it was, you spend all winter running around the state giving programs. It was sure. great. Sure, and you judged a lot of shows during that period when you were there. But in total, Bob, I mean, again, one of the reasons maybe you've got this uh, this award is you judged. Well, you tell me where you've judged. You've judged in a lot of places anyway, and and, uh, and um, yeah, some big some of the big shows, haven't you? I, I have. I mean, I've judged, you know, in Canada, Toronto, and Montreal, and, and, and Moncton had a big show one time. Then I, you know, I've judged Louisville and Houston and, you know, various, one of the standard performance shows. But, you know, actually, if there's anything in the judging, I think it is, is I try to make it more, I've always been a proponent of trying to make it a bit more objective, and that does fit in with Beef Improvement Federation to use the data in the show ring. Why guess on things that are measured? And and that's essentially what you're doing is an educated guess. Mm-hmm. And and I was involved with the National 4-H Judging Contest for 24 years, and we moved where every breeding class had a scenario where they would, you know, how the animals were going to be used, what the environment they were going to be kept in, and how they were going to be marketed and managed, and how what, what their use was. And so they would actually have real-life scenarios in which to rank those cattle and then give reasons on them. So it was a great learning opportunity. I thought we were way ahead of the curve. I was just always trying to get breeds to do that, but I never could. Well, you, you judged in Brazil and Paraguay and sort of South America eventually, but a great experience that you had, but uh, you eventually did wind, wind down as a judge, didn't you, Bob? Well, yeah, I, I mean, it was a great experience. I mean, my wife and I went on some great vacations on, on through judging, and that includes South America, you know, great opportunities to go down there and, 
And I mean, boy, they take it seriously. I mean, it is deadly serious in South America. And, uh, but it, you know, I'll tell you, I, I finally, I judged a lot of pole harpers for the reasons said earlier. And, and I got to where I was judging. And I, I thought, you know, I was judging some really nice broody cattle that would, I thought would make some good cows. And then I would look out and uh, I get the bloodlines at the end. And they weren't the kind of cattle that were going to make, you know, that could give a thimble full of milk. And I, I just thought, what am I doing here? You know, uh, why, you know, what, what am I accomplishing? And, and I think I was accomplishing things at like that 4-H contest. Mm -hmm. But in the show ring, I just tell you, I really wasn't accomplishing that much. And I thought maybe I should go a different direction. Okay. So that's uh, that's you. You stayed involved with the judging, uh, the judging contest, uh, uh, didn't you, Bob? You've always, you still are, I think. Well, I, and I've, I've wound that down, but I mean, I've been involved in judging contests in Houston and uh, the National Intercollegiate Contest. I I was uh, superintendent of the Eastern States Contest. Uh, you know, I've given uh, listened to reasons in any number of uh, state contests. So yeah, I mean, I love working with the, the youth and all the things you learn. And then when you add in this layer of the scenarios, I just think it's a great, great real life way way things are. You have to justify, you have to make decisions, and you have to make decisions off some real life information. And I I just think that's great. Anytime you can work with young people. I, you know, sometimes occasionally somebody will come back and they'll tell you what an impact you, that you've had on their life. And you'll, yeah. holy heck, I didn't know that. Yeah. I mean, it's really, really humbling. Certainly heard, heard a couple of names that you mentioned when we had uh, Glenn Klipperstein on, on, on the program saying exactly the same thing. You see, that's the things that give you that give you the greatest uh, the greatest pleasures when people come back and say that you've, you've impacted their entire life. And, and Bob, we'll just move on with your own life. And uh, you, you eventually got the itch, I think, to, to go out of education and go back into to production agriculture, didn't you? And... and uh, Give it another, give it a go, a bit of crossroads for you, maybe. Gosh, I was around so much. I mean, we were doing cool stuff at Extension. I mean, I coming up with all kinds of rations and doing stuff. But gosh, I, I wanted to get back and do it my, you know, myself. Get you know, actually get part of it, and uh, it was. And so there was a guy that that was near that had that what I thought was the best. Angus Cowherd that ever existed. I really did. It was Harmony Hill Farms. Okay. Just a beautiful set of cows. And I fell in love with those cows. And uh, so I went to work down there. And it didn't work out quite as as I had hoped. Uh, I mean, we were uh, calving a huge number of first calf heifers because we were going to grow that herd considerably. But uh, when I was in the heart of calving, the high temperature for the time was five degrees Fahrenheit and most of the time it was on top of a mountain where the wind was always blowing and most of the time it was minus you know uh, negative numbers which is you know that is is a lot colder than centigrade and um, the wind was blowing he liked to keep the barn clean, so he didn't want me to put cattle in there unless you know there was feed hanging out. Right. So I've been mean, keeping cattle alive, but we had we had seven days where, we, where the lights went out. There was no power, and then eventually I so I, I mean I was where we were going to have a partnership, except there was no work in the other. I just did it all, so I was working day and night, 
and and then eventually we had a uh uh, I had a damn windbreak blow over on top of me. Uh, you had to keep the cattle, which on top of that windy mountain one got loose. And stupid enough, I tried to shore it up when the wind was blowing. So that blew over on me, and that, that ended the production agriculture thing. Because I what just size, what size of windbreak? We're not talking to something you just put on the beach to keep the wind off. What size of windbreak are we talking here, Bob? Because it did you a bit of damage, didn't well, it? Well, it's... Yeah, it's 10, ten foot rough cut lumber porosity fence, and so it's uh yeah, it's it's pretty substantial, uh-huh. and, and that it it'll 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 put a hurt on you. And then I mean, the funny thing was then I uh, I hit a damn moose on the interstate. I mean, I hadn't been out at all, and then all of a sudden I, I decided to go out one and judge this little tiny four H show right before I got my back operation on driving home. I, I was going 70 miles an hour on the interstate, and boom, there's a moose standing there in the interstate. And I took that thing in the windshield, although I have a little blank spot because I don't actually remember when I hit the moose. But uh, anyway, he, he came in, and um, I um, I was a uh, little bleeding, and, uh, you know, had a little. Luckily, what saved me is I was reclined as far back as you could get because of my back injury. Otherwise, it would have just decapped. <laughs> through the window. Yeah, well, yeah, I did. It came right in. They're so tall. Their eyes don't. Uh, their eyes don't glare, and they're so tall. The body is way up, and and also I had low beams on. So I mean, I didn't see that thing till I was ready to take them into the windshield. So anyway, I mean, a nurse put me in her lap, and she kept pressure on my face and, and I went to some little hospital and he and 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 the guy said I'm gonna find you somebody better to sew you up and and um he goes on the phone and and calling and calling finally somebody came in and and he sewed on me for a very 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 long time and also no, I got but anyway the, this guy he said I gotta get those stitches out in two weeks to keep the scarring down and and went and it turned out to be a dang dentist, a oral surgeon. <laughs> so I sat in a dentist chair getting the stitches out. But he did a wonderful job. I mean, I had I have a uh, uh, adopted uh, sister who uh, who is a plastic surgeon. Said oh, I couldn't have done a better job. But he had already lined somebody up to work on me. So anyway, what came out of that is. I got the red Angus. I needed a job. And the other thing is I said, either I'm the center of the universe or something bigger than me is the center of the universe. Right now, me being the center of the universe is not working out so well. So I think I'll believe in something bigger than myself. And so that was an important realization in my life that, you know, you, there is a bigger thing. There's a bigger purpose. Uh, there's a higher power. And that's important to realize in your life. And I got the Red Angus. And, the, and that was a great thing, especially them hiring somebody from the East. It was a Western breed. 23% of the cattle were in Montana. Right. Where are going to go? So I was very fortunate to get hired. And a lot of that had to do with uh, – I, mean, I had some great team members in Maine who came through with me as a um, – as references as well as people like Glenn Klippenstein, Fred Williams, and other people that I knew that, that you know were on the national scale. And I just called them up and said, "Hey, I need a job, and could you could you serve as a reference?" And, and they 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 really 
came through for me. It was a, it was a great thing. And we don't we don't have a great deal of, or as many Sydney Red Angus on, on on this side of the pond there. But the Red Angus back then would be maybe a smaller breed than it is now. But uh, there were a lot of big breeders had had a few of them, didn't they? Well, you know, it was a very very interesting breed. It was it was Western. It was it was very much a Western oriented breed. Actually, it was very regional within the West. And they also had very large breeders, a lot of breeders with a thousand cows. And they tended to be eccentric because they were a, a performance breed. Mm-hmm. And so the, the performance was, that's what it was founded on. Mm-hmm. Not actually against the show, right? it was founded on commercial and objectively describing cattle. So th- these, when these breeders got in, that was the opposite of the common way of doing things so they were big they were smart and they were eccentric and they sold a lot of bulls and so what a wonderful opportunity to go in and learn from a bunch of bright people and they wanted to do things i mean they they, they would go against the grain that didn't they didn't bother them a bit it was a wonderful place to be and and, and the red angus thing is it's, it's almost a contradiction in terms really especially now bob where you know in, in the u.s everybody gets paid for a premium premium for a couple of the black whether those and say whether they're angus or not as long as they've got a wee bit of angus in them so a red angus doesn't get that it is it is a it's going the wrong direction really that that's true and one of the things that i was initially hired to be a marketing uh coordinator to get the black red get you know get the good red cattle selling with good black cattle because of the discount mm-hmm. and they they are getting back to being discounted again but you know we we did a number of programs and one of those was we got a usda process verified program where cattle could enter into approved angus product lines and and so we we got that done with, with my friend fred williams who at usda who was uh is one of one of my references, and and other people at USD were great. I, I uh, Lee Leachman was the president at the time, and we I badgered Cisco until I got a meeting with them. They're our largest food service company, mm-hmm. and we started supplying them. So we got we got into the Angus game, and uh, and we had an outlet for the cattle, and we did some of the initial value based marketing, so people get get paid on true value. So so we, so we kind of. Uh, crack that nut now they they're, they're back in the same situation where they ha- they have to do some of the same things we did then but um uh, yeah it was it was something we we were starting behind I, yeah, and uh, when we had to get going to summarize that i suppose as you say discounted cattle is that the, the, the packing houses could buy your red cattle without paying the black premium on them and and, uh, and and getting good cattle for less money is that what you're saying hey, exactly and and you know the thing thing with red angus is it's really not a, what you said is exactly right but red angus was a philosophy because why why have two breeds it's like horn and pole Erford. i know that's something you need to have over there but i mean why why have red and black and the reason it was red cattle is it was based off of a philosophy and they used the throwaway cattle, what was thought to be genetic defects by the American Angus Association, to express this philosophy of performance and objectively describing cattle in that way of selection and having a commercially oriented breed. And you know, the fascinating thing is we, we took that 
we took a philosophy that we were going to have the best objectively described cattle uh, and we were going to do with as few traits possible in terms of genetic predictions. We took a philosophy that what the breed was was Angus, so it should be the maternal common denominator in progressive commercial producers' crossbreeding systems. And, and we took the philosophy that our business was selling bulls and our customer was a commercial producer and that our role was to make our members profitable. Mm-hmm. So we put all our efforts into that, what I just told you, all, all our efforts, and, and we spent no money on recruiting new membership. And just, just naming your customer at the time as a commercial producer was actually something revolutionary, yeah. which is weird. Yeah. Sounding, you know, you think that would be self-evident. Mm-hmm. But uh, at that time, it was revolutionary to determine that. And, and so we, we spent all our money in trying to make our members profitable on selling in bulls into a commercial or, or uh, commercial heifers and with no money on recruiting new members. And we grew faster than anybody else who, who the whole purpose was to, to gain new members, which was really like, kind of fascinating. We grew from 11th to 4th. And putting zero effort into yeah, it, really. and so that I think that was one of the interesting things. And uh, uh, I mean, it's it's just goes to show people are attracted to to success. And I'm not saying it was because of me. I gosh, there were so many great people around there, and, and talented breeders, and great staff, and and I mean, it was it was it was, it was a team effort. Some of the people that we've discussed on this podcast, in the way Harlan Ritchie and Glenn Kempstein, and Steve Nichols, and whatever you call them, some of those guys would be your pals by that time, and you did call on them to come in and speak and certainly give you some advice at a time where where things were changing as well. But there'd be a lot of different things going on in the whole industry, let alone just in the Red Angus. Absolutely, you know. Th- Things were, as we got through the frame race, things were moving more objective. You know, those are the best minds in the country. And, and, and that's who I wanted to seek. And that's who I wanted people to be exposed to. And I did the same thing hiring. My goal when hiring people is first get people that are good at stuff I'm not good at. And if I can hire people smarter than me, even better. And, and you know, you start to surround yourself with people that are talented, have different skills, and are really smart. And, gosh, you can get phenomenal amount done. Uh, and and it was, it's so exciting when that happens. And would you, would you have pioneered some of those things? The new EPDs were coming in and a total herd reporting, you know, a re- reproductive sire summaries. A lot of those things there that you were doing there would, would, would be at the beginning for all the breeds, wouldn't it? Yeah, I mean, basically all of it. I mean, you know, the, like total herd reporting, that was that went through, there were several fathers of uh, parents of total herd reporting. It was an idea of Melvin Leland's. Uh, Jim Leachman came up with the idea of the inventory-based system, uh, and then and then I I came up with the reporting calendar on how you how you implemented it. And and gosh, that you had a producer then had to account for the production of every cow every year and the performance of every calf raised through weeding on every calf, or we inactivated the cow. I mean, it was a pretty tough performance program, but. That gave us unbiased genetic predictions because we had the entire weeding contemporary group and then we could adjust for selection after that because we had the whole contemporary group. And then with the whole contemporary group, we could also 
assume normal biological distribution of the data so we could get rid of stuff that should, let's say showed non-biological properties you know it was made up whatever it was you know you, you wouldn't see it in nature and you can you can tell it pretty easily in easy statistics you can just dump it and then we we were going to do the we wanted to do the fewest EPDs to to describe reproduction, uh, maintenance, growth, and carcass. And we worked with Colorado State had some great minds there, Bruce Golden being the primary one. And we, he, they came up with the idea of economically relevant traits. What actually pays you dollars rather than what is the indicator of that? And, and, and so that's how we judged whether we to, to have an EPD was the economically relevant trait. So we got that done. We, we described those four areas. That, that was the first female reproductive sire summary we i mean it was exciting times and and what we had going for us is we were all ignorant on what could and couldn't do at a breed association that was our strength i think we I, didn't know what, what we couldn't do I, th- I know we've got top gun back at the cinemas there but i think a bit of maverick went on with, with sounds like it uh, bob and, and you got into you got into the financial side of it as well and i think you kind of kick us on that one as well didn't you well I, actually that was that was a, a funny thing i uh, I was uh, I was an exec before me, uh, uh, and after a couple of years, he came up. He was a hundred eighty thousand dollars on the hole, and we only had about a million dollar budget at that time. And so he got moved on, and I got moved up. And I was never so lost in my life. I mean, I knew nothing, and and I I just finally. I got down and I started looking at the ledgers and working it up into line items. And I had to go to basics because I was so, so lost. I mean, I, did, I went in knew, knowing nothing. And then I would get the staff together every month and, and we together so we could figure it out. And at the end of the year, by golly, we got it balanced in one year. And, uh, and, and which is... <laughs> That was a miracle, but we did. Everybody pitched in and worked together, and you know we economized where we could. But we we did we had all the paper clips we needed, and we got the things done we needed to get done. And uh, it was just a matter of working through it. But all of a sudden, they thought I was some whiz at finances, and here I had started out probably the most ignorant person on earth on finances. So it was interesting. I, I got that reputation, but I, I always was kind of cheap and I always, I, I liked the balance budget without a doubt. And it was, uh, I mean, that was an important part of it, but I, I always thought it was kind of comical that I do have that reputation because, I mean, I, I started out pretty tough, let's put it that way. And we, we all know within the breed societies, certainly in the UK, the breed societies are, are, are very, uh, what's very traditional and hang on to their own breeds. And, and it is, we see a turnover of, of chief executives in the breed societies in the UK. I'm sure it's probably the same in the States. You know, we, I think one of the, I wouldn't mention names, but you know, two or three of the jobs are still up for grabs just now. And one or two has turned two or three over in, in a couple of years. And uh, and Bob, you did 13 years. I think I think you won a long service medal for being the longest service servicing chief executive probably in the world at 13 years, or certainly close to it anyway. <laughs> Well, I mean, there's certainly a lot, you know, there's some that go 20, but I was the longest serving exec in the history of the Red Angus Association. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's generally a position that if you're going to do things, you're going to make changes, um, 
you you have a you have a time clock on you you know because every change is you make is not necessarily in the best interest of somebody else you know somebody else has a, a vested interest in the status quo and I, i'll give you one exa example like the show ring uh, when i got there they they were not managing the shows at all and the first show was a national show in Iowa, and it was required that the judges use EPDs, EBVs, and that judge wouldn't pick up the EBVs. The second show of the year, that was a regional show, they had a, a, a picked a birth weight 10. I, did, uh, I didn't know in Red Angus you could get, I had never seen one above like a three or four birth weight. So, I mean, it picked it up. But it, and then the next one, uh, the ju the judge was under indictment for selling clembuterol, which is a steroidal muscle builder, mm -hmm. to 4-H kids to uh, soup up their steers. And he went to jail. <laughs> so I said, I, I got to the next board meeting. I said, hey, we got to get our names off these suckers, yeah. you know. <laughs> and, and and we, we got to get get a national show. And we got to run it. And we got to do it right. Sure. And so essentially we had a national uh judging the show committee of me and <laughs> i just decided what to do and we but we got it in line with red angus and i'm very proud the cattle that were winning in the shows were being used by the general population and but that kind of heavy-handedness eventually people will get bored with you know but it worked it works. It is hard, but eventually, it's hard you're going to do is all we know, Bob. But uh, as you said, if you can get the animals in the shivering little breed, that's uh, that, that's all. That's utopia for everybody, isn't it? So it's the right direction to go in. I'm proud of it. I'm really proud. And of it. then you wound you wound that down. I said after your 13 years, and Bob, you um, similar to myself, you suddenly started writing. And uh, hey, what, what they say there's one book in everybody, and I know they, they said there was one book in me, and I haven't stopped writing them yet. And I think you've probably written more than I have, Bob. But uh, you got deeply involved in the history side of it didn't you and uh, tell us a bit more about about how you got into the writing side of it well i mean uh john Doss, who, who was partnered with herman purdy was doing a second edition of breeds of cattle you know that classic coffee table book and and that really needed updated because it was done during the frame race so it was greatly expanded and it went up to 45 breeds and had to have all new pictures and new descriptions when when uh the descriptions of ideal animals had to change so there was quite a bit of rewriting to do it so that got me into it and, and i'll tell you i think harlan ritchie was the best futurist i ever knew and uh, and one time I, I asked him why those Bates cattle in, in 1873 sold for staying much money, you know, because that just didn't make any sense. And he said, well, they had terrible reproduction and they were, there was a fat on them. And so, so that's why they sold for so much money. And I'm going, how does the best futurist in our industry know about Bates cattle in the mid 1800s down to the detail? And I said, and that really left an impression on me that somebody that that that, that was, they were connected. You needed to have that timeline up through uh, to, to be a futurist. You don't make the same mistakes as the past. Sure. I mean, hell, I was doing a master's degree on grazing brassicas, which is basically turnips, which you guys were doing in the 1700s. <laughs> so I mean, we don't need to repeat the same stuff all the time. 
So, so I, I, it's, it's part of it. You don't live there, but it, it helps inform you to get to the future. But so in doing the writing, of course, you, then you took another U-turn and went to work for the Limousins Association. And I suppose apart from being the same color as the Red Angus, it's a pretty different breed to the, to the Angus uh, philosophically as well, didn't it? How, how do things go there? Well, it, yeah, I was for, fairly short-lived <laughs> there, you know. Uh, they 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 wanted what I was what I did at done at Red Angus, and basically they wanted they were more of a, a show breed and those kinds of things, and they really wanted to take it to a into a um, into a, a performance breed, more of a commercial commercial base breed. And I went in there pretty hard to do that because I knew if I was going to make those changes, I had a limited time uh, to make them because. You know, people were not going to, you know, that would not be in the best interest of some people. When I got there, I realized they hadn't had a balanced budget in 17 years. So we balanced the budget. We got a strategic plan. I restaffed and, uh, and, and we changed the direction of that ship. But that was not in the best interest of a lot of people. And, and I, and I also pointed out some, some, problems with the cattle that need to be corrected as well as the great things about the cattle because they do have some great things and and uh, all that added up to a pretty short tenure for me. Yeah. and that was fine i, I mean I, I learned that what a, i learned what a real breed association was like red angus was some kind of weird weird utopian place i'll have to bite uh, my, I, that was, I was at a real association i'll bite my political lip here because uh, we have sort of uh, there has been similar things uh, some similarities that you said in the limousines there was maybe what's uh, what's gone in the uk and, and then bob you did retire and you took up writing as, as you said and your expanded interest in 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 history and, and uh, learning from what you know what people have done in the past and it was a one person along the line that really, really sparked your interest in that in the history. Well, I mean, I, I again, uh, two people, Harlan. Mm. You know and that, that story I told you about the Bates cattle was was so important, and, and also uh, Herman Purdy. I mean, I remember asking him questions: why, why did why did the belt buckle issue uh, error occur? And he goes, "Well, the the fat was the tallow was worth X amount during World War II, and and you know that thing got things started. Then it just sort of got carried away. But I mean, he he went through the explanation of what happened, and and, and so there was a flow to things, and and things started to make sense. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. and and you know, when you get those bright minds that are futurists, but can explain how you got there, gosh." That, that, that excites me. Gosh, that gets me fired up. Sure. Wants me to learn. Sure, and and great names that you mentioned about there, and of course, they, they, a lot of these great names are, are honoured in, in in somewhere called the Saddle and Sirloin um, Club, where their portraits are hung on the wall, and a lot of our listeners will know about that and will heard about. There's some great names in there, and you've been involved in that by nominating um, um, quite a few of the or, or writing the nominations for these people. And what's that entailed? And you've done a bit of research on a lot of people, I guess. Well, I've done. I've worked with five uh, nomination packets, and I mean, you have to write their whole biography. It's a huge job, but gosh, you learn so much because you're taking heroes, and then you're writing their biography, and you get letters of recommendations in. You need need at least a hundred letters of recommendation. You have to put their resume together, and you know the impact they've had, and um, 
I mean, it's a it's a big job, but it, I thought that was a volunteer area I could work in. And gosh, I get, I bet you I put at least seven, maybe eight months into those, you know, time into that. I mean, it's a it's a it's a job. But gosh, I've learned so much from these people. I I came out uh, well in the in the deal. I mean, it was really good. I. It's nothing I ever got paid for. I don't didn't want to be paid for. I, I, I wanted to do it as a service, as an honor to my heroes, and to learn. And it, it was it, it's been really fun. And and then of course you became the go-to person for writing breed histories. And and uh, yeah, well, between us, we've both been involved a few of these things and and, and cross work together. But uh, some great people like uh, Bert Moore and, and such like have, have have helped you on that on on those uh, on those jobs. Uh, again, it's, it's about the people you surround yourself with. Uh, I mean, you've given me some wonderful things on Scottish stuff that I needed to know as, a, as other people. Working with a Burt Moore or a John Dawes or, I mean, I had some great people when I did the Simmental things because I always, I want, I want somebody, you know, to give me some ideas on research and, and I always get a couple proofreaders that are very talented. And, yeah, I mean, again, you surround yourself with great people when you learn so much. It's just, it's just, it's so much fun. Yeah. And I've been really lucky that I've gotten the opportunity to write a breed histories as they've actually occurred. And not just a advertisement, sure. and that that's a, that's a real important thing that given that license to do that, of course, and and, and, and that's what's made it fun. And another thing, because you, you've amassed a lot of, of historic images as well, which I think is a passion of yours. I don't know how many you've got stored away there, uh, Bob, but there must be a bit of value amongst this. I have a couple collections, and one I have a collection with somebody else that's two hundred and twenty nine gigabytes. My my primary collection has twelve thousand images in it and uh and i started getting that from you know these great people like uh, harlan ritchie and dave hawkins and, and and various you know uh herman purdy professor purdy's collection and as people started to age i would get their collections so they didn't get lost to time yeah. because that's that's what happens to them yeah. and then i would also be dig for images for books or other projects or articles and all of a sudden I got 12,000 images. And so I'm, I'm actually mo moving this on to another entity and we're working on uh, into the future and that there's a home for, for collections. Mm -hmm. And possibly, possibly you and I might do something together in the future, but we'll watch that uh, watch that space on that one. Bob, you do one other thing that you, that you do is that you um, you run a popular Friday history lesson on 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 Facebook, doesn't it? And that that a bit like myself with the podcast, we we love doing it, but it takes a bit of time, doesn't it? I think it takes a bit of time. I tell you what, that, that, a lot of that is you know sometimes finding an image that you have like five images that say what you want to have, but you're missing one mm. and you got to find that image. But other than that, a lot of it's in my head yeah. and I have those 12,000 images, but it's always finding that one image that you got to have to complete the story. But yeah, it's, it's fun. And it's so nice to get the, you get great comments as, as I know you do on your podcast. I've learned a lot from your podcast on Bakewell and all these one on South downs. And I'm gosh, it's been fun. It's been fun being part of it. And, uh, 
And I really appreciate well, that you've allowed me to be part of it. Well, Bob, it's been absolutely fun to honor yourself this week because, as I said, you've been my guest now for probably the best part of a year and on and off, and we've learned a lot of things about the States, things that I didn't know. And uh, for you to get this this great honor is, is, a, is a fantastic achievement to get to get your recognition there. And let's, Is there anybody there that you would actually say that was – what would you say? Well, was I, I'll tell you, um, I, I just entered a company of some names of some people I'm pretty proud of. Yeah. Yeah. The most important thing I've learned is that it's, it's that you have to learn. Mm-hmm. It's, it's who you surround yourself with, who you absorb information with. If you surround yourself with people with not much knowledge and not much skill, that's where you're going to end up. <laughs> if you surround yourself with people with talent and knowledge and you, and you pay attention and you learn, you're going to have a great career and a great life. You people like you, it just makes it fun. <laughs> and, uh, and so that, I think that's what it's about. It's always learning. And always being around great people and a great team. Uh, and that makes the world go around. Well, Bob, you're right. It has got to be fun. And I'd like to think, I hope that our podcasts are fun to a lot of our listeners. And as you said, we get a few nice comments and, and uh, we enjoy doing that. But I think that no more fun than the fun that you and I have had, not only over the last year, but particularly today, hearing about, uh, last hearing about who is this Dr. Bob Hogan. Uh, now they realize that uh, you've actually, uh, you've earned your spurs there. And it's great to, to see that you've been recognized for that, Bob. Thank you very much. Well, thank you. It's so nice for you to have me on. Mm-hmm. No, well, you've been—you've always been a pleasure, uh, and uh, and I think we've got a, a couple of other uh, uh, people in the U.S. to speak to over the next week or two as well, which uh, I'm looking forward to as well, Bob. So uh, we won't be long before we get you we get to hear your voice again. All right. Well, you take care. Thanks so much. Bob, thank you. All right. Bye then. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Top Lines and Tales. Once again, I'd like to thank our sponsors, Harbro, and I hope that many of you visited uh, the Scott Sheep event this week and got to, to chat along with, with Harbro on their trade stand. Uh, and, of course, you can always find them on the Internet, on their website or social media pages. So thank you, Harbro. Um, and don't forget to tune into our Facebook group to, uh, to find information about this episode and photographs and, and some fantastic old photographs that are being regularly presented by a chap called John Burrell. So uh, thank you, John, for your contributions to our Facebook website and uh, and to everybody for listening uh, hope you all have a great jubilee celebrations today <laughs> <laughs>